Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to you all, and um, we're really looking forward to this um, evening's exciting event, uh, The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's Legacy. My name is Elika, Elika Burma, and I'm the acting director of TORCH, T-O-R-C-H, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. We're here to promote, support, and encourage interdisciplinary research and also public outreach in the humanities and uh, throughout the humanities. We're really delighted this evening to be collaborating with the Bodleian Libraries and the Tolkien Archive on this event in which we celebrate 60 years since the publication of the final volume of Tolkien's fantasy epic, The Lord of the Rings, known and beloved by so many of us. We're lucky to have Tolkien's drawings and maps on display today. They are in the transept, which is the area between the lecture theatre and Blackwell Hall. And they're there until 6.30 p.m., so please do take a look at them after the discussion if you haven't had a browse already. We'd very much like to thank the Tolkien Estate for their permission to display these drawings and maps which come from the Tolkien Archive. After the discussion, drinks will be served in Blackwell Hall until 6.50, so 20 minutes beyond the time that... Um, that you have to look at the drawings and the maps, and the, uh, the Bodleian shop will be selling the latest Tolkien publication, The Art of the Lord of the Rings, and also, of course, other Tolkien works and gifts. We'd also very much like to thank HarperCollins, Tolkien's publishers, for sponsoring the drinks reception. And now it's my pleasure to hand over to our chair for this evening, who will introduce the other speakers, Dr. Stuart <coughs> Lee. Stuart is the Deputy Chief Information Officer for IT Services. He's a lecturer in the English faculty, and he's a member of Merton College, Tolkien's old college. He's a well-known expert on Tolkien's fiction and manuscripts. He edited the 2014 Companion to Tolkien, and he ran the 2013 Tolkien Spring School at Oxford. So he's an excellent guide for us this evening. Stuart, over to you. Let's welcome oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm also not against a shameless plug. Um, our latest book uh, is The Keys of Middle Earth. There's a flyer there, you get 30% off, so a bargain. Um, the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's Legacy. I'd like to say a few words just to introduce this evening, and then we will uh, introduce our speakers in turn. Each of them will talk for about 10 minutes, uh, and then we will move over to a question and answer session. So be prepared to think about some things to ask them. On the 12th of October 1955, Professor Tolkien, in obviously some degree of panic, wrote desperately to his publishers, Alan and Unwin, don't fail of the 20th of October, the last possible day, he pleaded, adding, on the 21st, I have to give the first O'Donnell lecture overdue, and I must hope that a large part of my audience will be so bemused by sitting up late the night before that they will not so closely observe my grave lack of equipment as a lecturer on a Celtic subject. Now this is, I'm sure as you all know, quintessential Tolkien. Mention of a lecture that was overdue is not rare. Um, excessive use of the modesty formula by describing himself as having a grave lack of equipment to deliver the Celtic lecture. It was his wonderful lecture on English and Welsh, which was published in 1963. But what was he banking on that would keep them up all night the night before and thus distract him from his talk? 
Well, it was, of course, the publication of The Return of the King, the third and final volume of The Lord of the Rings, a date we are celebrating at this event, and it was duly published on the 20th of October, as promised, uh, although it didn't appear until the following January in the States, and ran to an initial run of 7,000 copies, and if you happen to be a proud possessor of one of those copies, you're a very rich person. <laughs> His concern may well have been justified, of course, because readers of The Two Towers, the second volume, had been waiting almost a year to find out what was to happen, having left Sam banging on the doors of Kirith Ungol. The Lord of the Rings has now sold over 150 million copies, by some estimates, and been published in over nearly 40 languages. But we shall find out this evening from the first of our speakers, Patrick Curry, that numbers do not necessarily make it a great book, and indeed it has divided people since its publication, being praised and criticised in equal measure. And as you probably all know, Professor Tolkien once remarked, the Lord of the Rings is one of those things, if you like it, you do, if you don't, you boo. But whatever we think of it, and presumably this is an audience whose attitude towards the book will be favourable, so I, I don't have to uh, wear any plate armour, what happened 60 years ago has had considerable repercussions to this day. At the time, Tolkien himself, whilst pleased with the book and the completion of the task, could not quite see what was to follow. Writing to Catherine Farrer on the 24th of October, only four days after the return of the King's release, he stated, I don't think I've started any tide. I don't think such a small hobbit-like creature or even a man of any size does that. If there is a tide, and I think there is, then I am just lucky enough to have caught it. And whilst there's truth here in that Tolkien was by no means the first writer of what we might call fantasy literature and to have achieved some success, it's hard to look back on the completion of The Lord of the Rings and not see it as a major seismic shift in 20th century literature. To many people it marked the birth of fantasy literature, or to be fair, modern fantasy literature, and indeed with a refreshing honesty that many critics uh, never face up to, Brian Atterbury, in his Strategies of Fantasies of 1992, um, answered his own question of how to define fantasy as the set of texts that in some way or other resemble the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and is it not astonishing, if you've gone to Blackwell's to see the map that's currently on display, um, that there are at least ten bookcases devoted to what we would call science fiction and fantasy. It's often lumped together. But most of the fantasy books, and the vast majority, are written in the shadow of the Lord of the Rings. And that's not to mention the two separate bookcases devoted to Lewis and Tolkien themselves. So it comes as a surprise then to many people that such a large and popular genre is so overlooked in literary studies, and in some cases rigorously rejected. If the Lord of the Rings established modern fantasy fiction and has had such an enormous cultural impact worldwide... Not to mention the $6 billion grossed by the Jackson films, including the Hobbit films alone. How can any literature department worth its salt overlook it and indeed overlook fantasy literature as a serious topic of the study? And in our second talk this evening, very pleased to welcome Demetra Femi, who will be giving her experience of t teaching fantasy literature and Tolkien at the university level. But finally... We must remember that Tolkien, this was not his day job. He was actually paid to be a medievalist. And when we talk of his legacy, we must also consider his legacy to medieval studies. Indeed, the recent posthumous publications coming under his name have indeed now begun to centre on his translations, commentaries um, and poetical or prose reactions to a famous medieval text or story. And in our final talk this evening... 
uh, Professor Andy Orchard is going to be taking us through that part of the Tolkien legacy. That's all I'd like to say by way of introduction. It's wonderful to have you all here. You did very well to get in. I think the waiting list was 100. Um, and they did wonder if this would be popular. So I'm now going to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Patrick Curry, who is an independent scholar, but also uh, affiliated to the University of Wales, uh, St. David's College. Um, the title of his talk, although we didn't particularly ask people to give a title, but this is a great title, Is the Lord of the Rings a Great Book? Um, uh, Patrick would be known to many of you. Um, he's written extensively on Tolkien. Indeed, his, his chapter in um, The Companion to Tolkien on the critical reaction to Tolkien's works uh, is absolutely superb. Uh, and he has recently brought out his most recent publication, Deep Roots in a Time of Frost, Essays on Tolkien. Ladies and gentlemen, Patrick Curry. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, nice to be here. Um, and I was going to start by mentioning my, uh, my entry in the Companion to Tolkien, edited by Stuart, uh, on the uh, critical response to Tolkien's fiction. It's a longish paper, and I'm really going to, not going to try and summarize it for you in a few minutes. Um, so uh, I want to say, if you want a full and proper sense of the subject, uh, or, or chapter and verse, I would have to ask you to start from there. But I do have a few other things to say related to that subject. One is that the problem in evaluating Tolkien's work, I think, has always been, uh, as Tom Shippey says, that he was as educated as anyone else, usually, of course, more so, but in a different school, end quote. In a way, the hippies were right. Tolkien is and was genuinely countercultural. His primary commitments to historical philolo philology, Catholicism, but also northern pagan courage, enchantment as opposed to power magic, and the literary primacy of story remain deeply unfashionable in most contemporary critical contexts. At the same time, his enormous popular success has confirmed the existence of an almost unassuageable hunger among readers for exactly what Tolkien created out of those elements, which provides another reason not to forgive him, of course. But the situation is slowly changing. Five years ago, one of The Guardian's chief reviewers stated that, quote, of all the means for professional suicide that are available to the writer, expressing affection for Tolkien is one of the most effective. <laughs> End quote. I'm grateful to him for being so open about it. Since then, however, a newer generation has come into its own of writers and critics who grew up with the books, retain an affectionate, if not uncritical, respect for them, and are not afraid to say so. Even the older gatekeepers, though still mounting a rearguard action, have had to, to adapt their tactics. Thus, um, John Mullen, professor of English at University College London, recently admitted in print that The Lord of the Rings has been enormously influential, but not because it is in any way a great book. Ironically, where to approve of Tolkien was once considered reactionary, now the fear is that to entirely disapprove of him 
might appear so. So I would like to approach in these few minutes the question of the critical reception of Tolkien's work through this question, which has always haunted that reception. Is The Lord of the Rings, as so many readers have maintained and so many critics denied, a great book? I am sure of one thing. Even after the hermeneutics of suspicion have done their worst, that remains a perfectly legitimate question to ask of this or any other book. And although flawed, Tolkien's has at least a plausible case in its favour. It deals with profoundly important issues. At least three come to mind. Our relationship with the living natural world, this Middle Earth, now caught between the retreating ice and the advancing fires that you may have read about or even experienced. Secondly, power and what certainly seems to be evil, its entwinement with technoscience, and the nature of resistance. And thirdly, mortality, both death and the consequences of a quest for deathlessness. And if you read the rhetoric coming out of Silicon Valley, you'll know that that quest is a very, so to speak, alive and well. True, you would not go to the Lord of the Rings for insights into issues of sex gender. <laughs> but that doesn't seem to pose a problem for admirers of Moby Dick. And there is no sex in it at all, like, say, Dubliners. There are other possible criteria as well for looking at this question. One of them was proposed by the late David Foster Wallace. Quote, In dark times... The definition of good art would seem to be art that locates and applies CPR to those elements of what's human and magical that still live and glow, despite the time's darkness. Check, I think. Or there is a point made by Roger Shattuck, an eminent critic of that other great quest novel, if indeed, like Tolkien's, it is a novel at all, In Search of Lost Time. The great books, said Shattuck, affect the economy of life for many individuals by allowing them to achieve personal experience sooner, more directly, and with less groping. This sense, this secret, it was, is what allows certain people to live life at all times as an adventure. Decidedly check. Finally, for me, most decisively, and I think for Tolkien's modernist critics, most damagingly, there is the remark by Paul Ricoeur, who coined the term hermeneutics of suspicion, that what is now needed is a second naivete, a post-critical rediscovery of wonder, which constitu constitutes true maturity. The contrast with those critics' rather juvenile obsession with being the adult in the room is pretty striking. The work of scholars swimming against the critical tide, such as Tom Shippey, indubitably, plus Verlin Flieger, John Garth, and others, has also made a difference. And I'm very glad this, this event has afforded us an opportunity to honour them, and of course, to honour Tolkien himself. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patrick.
Um, our second speaker tonight is Dr. Dimitra Fimi, Senior Lecturer in English at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Um, you will probably know Dimitra's works, Tolkien, Race and Cultural History, which is a, a stupendous book, winning the Mythopoeic Scholarship Award for Inkling Studies. And she has also told me, which I didn't know, you have to keep up to date with Tolkien's publications. They come out on a regular uh, basis. That She is currently working with uh, Andrew Higgins, who's also in the audience, on a new edition of A Secret Vice, which will be coming out soon. Dimitri. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I've been asked to talk about teaching Tolkien, and I have been teaching Tolkien for about 10 to 11 years now, uh, both in traditional face-to-face -face classes and in um, uh, online classes as well. And my academic career uh, is built on my expertise on Tolkien and fantasy literature, which I realise makes me a bit of an unusual case. Um, I don't think that it's too much of a generalisation to say that during the last... 20 years or so, Tolkien has been taught in some UK universities, but mostly as part of option modules or option courses, and mainly by medievalists, by uh, 19th century scholars, or by specialists on children's literature. That is, uh, as a peripheral, peripheral research or uh, teaching interest, and definitely not so much as part of a core a sort of obligatory module a student has to take in order to graduate with a single or joint honours in English. And I think, um, you know, it, this, this gave me the opportunity to reflect, I suppose, on my own journey on teaching uh, Tolkien started in the same way, with, with a dedicated option uh, module on Tolkien, focusing on his uh, medieval inspirations and contemporary cultural context, and an option module on the history of fantasy literature, from Victorian to contemporary, including, of course, Tolkien as the father of modern uh, fantasy, just like Stuart said, I completely agree with that, and the long shadow he has cast on the genre. Uh, but in recent years, I have, uh, found, uh, I have found myself in an institution where uh, I have had the fortune of teaching Tolkien and fantasy literature as part of core modules, both at undergraduate and at master's level. So at the moment, for example, uh, I'm teaching Tolkien as part of a new core module, year two, level five, on three genres that overlap and interweave, the Gothic, fantasy and science fiction. And of course, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is included as a core text of modern fantasy, which has been emulated, um, sometimes slavishly re reproduced, uh, but also challenged and reinvigorated by later writers such as Alan Garner, Ursula K. Le Guin, and many others. But for me, it's also important to get my students to engage with Tolkien's theorising of fantasy in his essay on fairy stories, especially with his ideas on building a secondary world with the inconsistency of reality, uh, his notion of sub-creation, and his discussion of the purposes and the functions of fantasy. And I do think, you know, and I sort of, you know, that was part of my contribution to Stuart's uh, companion, that Tolkien's self-reflection in this essay has actually inspired a tradition of fantasy writers theorising their own creative writing practice, uh, perhaps in an attempt to defend fantasy against its critics, um, or possibly to sort of fill the gap of, um, you know, not very serious um, scholarship on fantasy up until fairly recently. Tolkien, therefore, should, I think, be taught not only as a writer of fantasy, but as a theorist of this genre as well. And it has been a pleasure and a challenge, actually, to include Tolkien in a big survey module like this one. It's, it's a year-long 
course, uh, because I can only spend two weeks on The Lord of the Rings, which allows me to just about scratch the surface of this complex and multi-layered work. But of course, it allows me to talk about the templates that Tolkien established for the fantasy genre, um, his creative reshaping of mythological motifs from medieval literature, coupled with original invention and world building, uh, the revival of the narrative structure of medieval romance and the quest pattern, and the blending of the heroic literature and contemporary cultural concerns. So I get my students to follow such templates and the ways they've been revised, challenged and revisited by late fantasy writers. So we do look, for example, at the intrusion fantasy of Alan Garner or Susan Cooper, who chose to set most of their works in contemporary Britain, which is disturbed by the supernatural or the magical. Or in the high fantasy of Ursula Le Guin, who builds equally complex um, secondary worlds that are often set to challenge some of the traditions of fantasy uh, established by Tolkien. But what I find challenging is actually exactly that, and I think a lot of my colleagues find that, it's fitting Tolkien into a two-week window in a longer sort of course. And I suppose one could argue that the difficulty presents itself for any lecturer teaching any one representative work by any important writer with a large oeuvre, uh, choosing only one of Dickens's novels or a, or for a Victorian literature course, or choosing only one of Virginia Woolf's novels for a modernism course. So that must be equally challenging, you, you could counter-argue. But I think that in Tolkien scholarship, at least, the focus recently has been rightly, I think, on Tolkien's legendarium as a more or less unified whole, or at least, you know, not necessarily consistent, but you know, a vision of an extended mythology that Tolkien continued to develop over a period of 60 years. And it sometimes feels rather artificial to split The Lord of the Rings from The Hobbit or from the many versions of The Silmarillion, including the, you know, the 1977 uh, volume, or from the abortive novels that Tolkien was planning to integrate with the mythology, or from the many paratexts that contribute to the legendarium, uh, the genealogies, the appendices, the poetry, the maps, the invented languages, and of course Tolkien's art more generally, some stunning examples of which uh, are on display, as, as, as you heard in the, this very building today. And all of this is part of the whole. Uh, for me, it often seems then more rewarding to actually teach Tolkien at master's level when the focus may be narrower, but the complexities of his layers of texts and paratexts can be utilised more fully. Uh, so I include Tolkien in a postgraduate module on representing the past, which is core for students who graduate with an MA in English literature. So I have taught Tolkien uh, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings alongside, or even against, I suppose, Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, uh, the former a dialogue with medievalism as part of the very fabric of a fantasy world, going back to Tolkien's predecessors, predecessors such as uh, George MacDonald and William Morris, as opposed to Umberto Eco's postmodern medievalism, I, um, you know, this self-conscious parody of detective fiction masquerading as a historical novel, and looking at you know, the, the construction of the worlds in these cases. And at the same time, I've included Tolkien in sessions on romantic nationalism uh, as the continuation of a paradigm of the 18th and 19th century invention of tradition. Uh, so, for example, I've explored Tolkien's project for a mythology for England, you know, with all its problems and inconsistencies, alongside Macpherson's ocean compositions or the Finnish Kalevala. So one of the reasons, I think, why Tolkien is omitted from obligatory programmes of many English literature degrees is 
because it's genuinely difficult to include his work and do it justice in a long survey course. It, it is much easier to design a module dedicated to Tolkien only, but then that's to specialise, to be a core course, and has to be an option. So a master's programme sometimes allows much more room for manoeuvre, at least in my experience. But I think the elephant in the room comes back to, I think, Patrick's talk, and that kind of links quite well with what he was saying. And that's still the perception of Tolkien's work in the wider academic community, and in English literature departments in particular. Um, I started by saying that most of my colleagues who teach Tolkien in UK universities are not Tolkien specialists per se. Uh, they are medievalists or Victorianists or children's literature scholars. And I remember when I was close to finishing my PhD a long time ago, um, and that was on Tolkien, uh, listening to another panel, just, just like today, uh, in a discussion in which Professor Tom Shippey had said that he wouldn't advise anyone to do a PhD on Tolkien. You can imagine my reaction to that. Uh, because who would employ you? Um, and, you know, I suppose I am leaving proof that this isn't impossible. Uh, but how shall I phrase it? Um, you don't really see uh, that many kind of lectureships advertised that ask for a specialist on fantasy or science fiction. Uh, most positions on 20th century literature ask for lecturers that specialise in modernism, various posts, postmodernism, postcolonialism, etc., uh, or contemporary literature. And the problem is that Tolkien doesn't quite fit, you know, neatly with any of those things. So the periods that, uh, or the territories of English literature that are deemed canonical or serious or literary, uh, don't necessarily include in, in, a, in a, you know, clear way or in, a, in, a, in any uh, natural way, Tolkien. So fantasy and science fiction are still considered genre. Okay and safe to teach, only when they're old enough to be respectable. So it's more legitimate to teach fantasy or science fiction in a 19th century course, and of course, the Gothic is now acceptable as well. It has had a long history and has shaken off the popular label. But I do think that the tide is slowly turning. Um, Tolkien scholarship, as, as Patrick also remarked, has flourished uh, during the last 10 years as a younger generation of scholars are gradually moving away from some of the prejudices of the past. Um, I know that there are a number of exciting PhDs on Tolkien just completed or being written as we speak, and I should know, I've supervised one and I'm supervising another two, but I know of at least six or seven in, in different universities in the UK at the moment. So we have exciting new voices on Tolkien that are being heard in some of the most esteemed international conferences, such as uh, at Leeds and at Kalamazoo, and are being published in prestigious peer-reviewed journals, such as Tolkien Studies and the recently launched Journal of Tolkien Research. And it won't be long, I think, before this younger generation of scholars will come to be the professors, the heads of departments, the senior academics, with more say in programme and curriculum design. And I think this is only fair, and it chimes with the fact that students are serious about Tolkien and about fantasy and about science fiction, and they do want to study these authors and genres in a way that is academically rigorous and intellectually stimulating. Um, I can only speak from my experience, but the quality of work I get from my students on Tolkien and on fantasy is heartwarming and shows that their genuine enthusiasm can be channelled into serious scholarship that can illuminate genres that have played um, a significant role in 20th and 21st century culture. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now on to our final speaker, I'd like to introduce Professor Andy Orchard, the Rawlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon here at Oxford and a fellow of Pembroke College 
a post that Tolkien held 1925 to 1945. Uh, Andy is, of course, a leading scholar in Old English and Old Norse. Uh, he's written books on Oldhelm. He's producing a major study of the Anglo-Saxon riddles, and there's a forthcoming hint about something to do with Beowulf, which you may say something about later on. Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Orchard. What we are down in your dagum, Thilkeninga from your frunnan, who the other lingers, Ellen Fremadon. Uh, that's how Tolkien began a number of uh, his classes and lectures uh, here in Oxford. Um, and I have to say, not for the first time, I feel myself uh, a very unworthy uh, successor following on from two um, excellent papers. Um, the handout is to distract you from the fact that I haven't written my paper. Uh, so I'm going to be talking to it. If you look at the back of the handout, if you have it, I'm going to take you back to Exeter College, uh, Tolkien's undergraduate college uh, here in Oxford. Young man goes into Exeter College Library and he looks at the very few books that are available in that library on Old Norse literature. And from the pages of one of them, the so-called Corpus Poeticum Boreale, which was published in 1883, so in Tolkien terms, a brand new spanking book, he turns to a page with uh, Helga Krida Hundingsbana, uh, which is on the penultimate page of your handout, and a piece of paper flutters out, which I have reproduced for you on the back. Now, it says... Skulle atlir kolbiter sækja heim, C.S. Lewis, Maria Magdalene, Helki Bui, Óðins dei. Nofempri, dudugusti, hafnir. Erthin bit, Helga Kvíða Hundingsbana, 1, 50 to 100. The young man gets terribly excited. It's got C.S. Lewis's name in it. I don't need to translate it for this uh, audience, obviously, but uh, I will. Uh, all the kolbiters should go visit C.S. Lewis in his rooms in Magdalen College on Odin's Day, Wednesday, November the 20th, 8.30. Your bit is uh, C.S. Lewis's handwriting, I should have said. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, hadn't attended any of my Old Norse classes, otherwise he would know that the uh, Old Norse word for bit is sticky, but otherwise it's not a bad attempt. Uh, the Colbitus was the club that C.S. Lewis and Tolkien uh, created, uh, and the young man was me uh, in 1985. Uh, I was terribly excited, as you can imagine, because I realised, it's Tolkien, it's Lewis. Of course I'm an idiot, because Tolkien only started Colbitus with Lewis when he was the job that I have now. He was at Pembroke College. I'll come back to that. I went back to the librarian uh, 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 in Exeter, and Oxford librarians to this day, and obviously I'm very well aware of the building I'm standing in, Oxford librarians are the most incredibly clever people in the world it's possible my thumb was over the bit saying C.S. Lewis I can't remember <laughs> and I said to the librarian what shall I do with this and she said and I quote it's in foreign <laughs> they are the cleverest people in the world this is where I want to begin my, my discussion of Tolkien uh, and his legacy from an academic point of view because what Tolkien did when he came to Oxford and before then, when he was uh, at Leeds uh, with the Canadian uh, academic, um, Evie Gordon, where he also ran a Beer and Beowulf 
where people were there half for the right reasons and half for the wrong reasons. He ran a, a club, an Icelandic club. This isn't just any old club. If you look at the list of coal biters, uh, which is on uh, page nine, uh, <laughs> sounds bad to me for a 10 minute talk, page nine of your handout, <laughs> you'll see that these are some of the most intellectual, important, um, clever Oxford dons. It wasn't undergraduates sitting around reading, it wasn't graduates, it was uh, professors of comparative philology. Uh, it was tutors, it was, um, and the man who I am sure, for reasons I'm happy to answer a question on, that this piece of paper was addressed to is R.M. Dawkins, the first Bywater and Sotheby Chair of Byzantine and Medieval Greek and a Fellow of uh, Exeter College. Tolkien, when he came here, encouraged people to read Norse, encouraged people to read Icelandic. And if you go through, and if you have no friends like me, and you've got lots of timers on your hands, and you list every single course that Tolkien taught, uh, as I've given you on pages two, three, four, and five, over the 20 years that he held the chair that I have, um, there are, I see, a number of quite eminent Oxford academics in the room today. I defy any of them to claim that this is not an incredible workload in terms of lectures, in terms of supervisions, which separate, these are the lectures he gave within the department, not a single term did he take off for sabbatical. In no sense did he go on holiday. For two of the years that I'm talking about, he held two jobs. The first year, he remained in Leeds and would commute between Leeds and Oxford and teach. The last year that I've listed here, he was the Merton professor. Uh, and I don't know what goes on in the Merton professorship, but he presumably did something over there. Uh, but for these years, he taught Beowulf almost every single year. And Beowulf is the backbone for, for what he's doing. It was therefore hugely exciting uh, when in uh, 2014, I wish they'd held it over for a year to be the 200th anniversary of the first edition of Beowulf, um, Christopher Tolkien uh, produced this, his father's translation uh, of Beowulf. Um, from a professional point of view and in terms of Tolkien's legacy, I have to say the translation I find interesting, but not that interesting. Uh, it's, as Tolkien said, it's a crib, it's a helpmeet, it's to help you get through the poem. The notes are electrifying. The notes is where Tolkien demonstrates his complete mastery of Old English, his amazing imagination, the way that he controlled the poem, and you can see he's been teaching it over 20-odd years. Um, the legend is that this was finished in 1926. I don't believe it, uh, because he's continually revising it all the way through uh, his time uh, in the chair. It's a little bit difficult to verify this because in this wonderful uh, Western library, uh, you can now, if you're a medievalist, you can order 10 medieval manuscripts in a single day and you can have as many as four medieval manuscripts on your desk at any one time. But if you want to look at Tolkien stuff, you have one. Uh, I queried this with the librarian and uh, Oxford librarians are the cleverest people in the world. And they said, very important stuff. <laughs> More important than the medieval manuscripts that Tolkien himself uh, would have studied. Uh, what we find in this edition, and uh, uh, Stuart kindly allowed me to give a plug, I'm currently re-editing, re-translating uh, uh, Beowulf, uh, because God knows what the world needs is another edition. Of <laughs> That's why I'm not plugging it with a flyer. Uh, Beowulf scholarship has been stagnant for a long, long time. Um, a study showed that in the first 35 years of Beowulf scholarship, 
almost all of the readings were then settled and nobody dared to amend or conjecture or change those readings for most of the readings of Beowulf. Tolkien did. He doesn't care. He rewrites the poem. He changes the meanings. He moves things around, always with a reason, always with a very clever reason that if you follow through the notes and the, the lecture notes that he produces, you can see what he's doing. Um, and my translation of Beowulf, and you know, I hope I'm not around to see the reviews, uh, will be on, on a similar vein. Tolkien inspires and encourages new readings of Beowulf. Sometimes he's off the mark. Famously, his uh, Exodus edition, he didn't like the sound of the line, flowed, blowed, ye woad, which frankly I think is better than a lot of his poetry, but maybe this is not an audience to say that. Uh, so he amends it, he changes it. He didn't like some bits of the poem, The Battle of Malden, so he changes them. He didn't like the Christian passage in Beowulf from lines 175 to 185, so he wants to get rid of it and wants to excuse it and wants to amend it away. The fact is, he kept thinking about these poems. Throughout his career, he changed his mind. Lazy Tolkien doesn't stand up if you look at what he lectured on, what he taught, the people he inspired and the people he taught. One of the nice things about Tolkien, I think, is whenever he had a PhD student, a DPhil student, I should say, he would give a course of lectures designed for that DPhil student. Impossible today. Nobody would even contemplate such a thing, but he did it. Kenneth Brooks' edition of Andreas comes after a year when Tolkien lectures on Andreas, and you wonder who should get the doctorate uh, at the end of the day. <laughs> Recent publications, as, as has been said, uh, have focused on this intellectual oeuvre uh, with the translations from Eddic poetry uh, to do with um, um, the Gudrun poems uh, and so on. And they're brilliant. When I was doing my own Penguin Classic translations of the Poetic Edda, I went back to Tolkien to see what his readings were. Uh, the, the Arthur material in perfect Anglo-Saxon uh, rhythm and alliteration, excellent uh, again. What I would love to see, and if there is anybody from the Tolkien estate out there, I would love to see these things. For a lot of his professional life, he would turn poetry into Old English, into Old Norse. It was something that they did on a regular basis. The only things that we have surviving from that is one of his successors, uh, Campbell, who wrote a series of frankly filthy, scurrilous, unrepeatable uh, limericks and turned them into Old English verse. Uh, I've been trying to get older members, Eric Stanley, my predecessor, uh, Tolkien's successor, uh, who's now 92 last week. I'm trying to get him to repeat these scurrilous limericks, and he goes, ah, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. Tolkien's legacy will live long in Oxford, and uh, I'll just return uh, to the end. The interest of this piece of paper is if you flick back to the third last page, Lewis himself writes in a famous letter, famous to Tolkienists, I've got too many irons in the fire, the Michaelmas Club, the Linguistic Society, the Icelandic Society, and this and that. One week I was up till 2.30 in the morning on Monday, talking to the Anglo-Saxon professor, Tolkien, who came back with me to college from a society, sat discoursing of the gods and giants in Ausgard for three hours, then departing in the wind and rain. Who could turn him out? For the fire was bright and the talk was good. Next night till one, talking to someone else on Wednesday... Oh, stay till 12 with the Icelandics. It's very hard to keep one's feet in the sea of engagements 
and very bad for me spiritually. Well, of course, I embrace everything that is bad for me spiritually. So you can look up with an almanac. When did Odin's Day fall on November the 20th? And the answer is in 1929. This is the invitation for the meeting that Lewis talks about. This comes two days after the meeting that he had with Tolkien, which is those um, Tolkien scholars and C.S. Lewis fans in the audience will know far better than I, was the beginning of their fruitful collaboration, the beginning of uh, their sharing texts, sharing ideas, working together, writing together. Um, it's an incredible frisson to have such a thing fall into one's lap, or at least at one's feet. Uh, and it's part of, if you like, uh, the way that I feel myself very much firmly part of what we might call the intellectual um, heritage and legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien. Thank you. <laughs>